Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast. My name is Keely Severson and I'm here with co-host Eric Johnson and Alicia Swamy. Today we have the honor of interviewing Brian Carr from We Inspect. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Brian, thank you for joining us. I know it's been hard to connect. You got sick with strep throat and we had to rearrange our schedule a little bit. So thank you for making time for us. Hey, thanks for being flexible. I got my voice. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Uh, Great. We loved your interview with Dr. Bredesen, and I thought you made some really interesting points about that interview. One thing that I really liked that you said was testing mold. Like you, you made the distinction that you could test for mold in a room and look in the wall and find stachybotrys and maybe like a few feet away without opening the wall, you could do an air test and not find that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've just seen this over time. Like, you know, most, most local inspectors, they come in, they do air samples in the middle of your rooms. They test for air quote, air quality. They're doing, we're doing air quality testing. And most times that sample is going to show nothing. Right. And, and I've, we we just kind of knew this. And so that's kind of how we developed our more targeted source level testing, but I wanted to sort of prove it. So I had something to lean back on. And so that's kind of the story I was telling in the Dr. Bredesen interview is that for a year, while we were going on, on different inspections, every place that I went in and I just picked one spot in every house. I just did it one time in every house we were in where like, I felt really confident that like in this particular wall, I feel like this is going to come back. There's going to be a problem here. So obviously we would test that wall. But then I took a few steps away and I did this air sample at breathing level that every indoor air quality person does when they come in your house, every local inspector, that's what they're going to do. And like I said, 80% of the time that sample showed a false negative compared to what we found in the wall, just a few feet away. And that's what creates this false sense of security for people like that. That that inspector that's coming in and doing that is literally having a monumental impact on the person living in that house, both from a just an overall health perspective. Imagine you go to the doctor, you trust this doctor, the doctor's like, oh, no, you don't have cancer, you're cool. Meantime, you had cancer, right? That's not good, right? So like there's that going on, but then there's also you know the you know the financial impact of everything that's going on too, right? So now they're they have this false sense of security. They think nothing's wrong. In the meantime, they're still paying for medical treatments because they've ruled their house out because the house can't be a problem. They did this air sample, right? Mm-hmm. Yet they're still having to pay for all their medical treatments, all their supplements, all their this, all their that. The amount of money that's being spent over that time period on top of just their overall wellness during that time period. I mean, you might be looking two, three, four, five years of that, that you lost because some guy came in here and did an air sample in the middle of a room and told you everything was fine, Right. So they're actually, I've said this before, these people are actually, these guys that come in, guys and gals that come in and do this, they're actually making people more sick by the way that they come in and do this stuff. And it's, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of the the situation that we're in. 
Yeah, we noticed that too on our side, working with the really sensitive population. So as an inspector, my instinct would say that you have trusted mold remediation teams and trusted doctors that you can kind of work with and brainstorm with and ask questions. Uh, who, Who are some of your favorite doctors or what like medical people do you like to point to for answers? And then what are some of your favorite mold remediation teams? Just quickly. Yeah. That's, so on the doctor side, I mean, there's so many good ones. I'll say some of my kind of closer friends that I talk with on a more regular basis, Dr. Jill Krista, Dr. Javen Moore, Dr. Jess. And then there's some other ones that are more like local that aren't personalities that we talk to as well. Like these, those three people are, are folks that you could find on social media. They're creating a lot of content. You could find them. There's also a lot of real good doctors that are more local and where they are and they do a good job too. Christine Burke in the Bay Area is a good one. So there's there's a number of people that are out there. The the ICI, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with the organization, is the indoor or excuse me, International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. That is a group of practitioners and some feel, you know, some environmental people. So I'm in that as well. But it's it's everyone who kind of focuses on this subset of folks and handling that is primarily a medical practitioner group that also includes some environmental folks. I think myself and my partner, Corey, were the second and third people on the environmental side to come into the group when it was created. So that's a good spot to look for people on that side of the thing, uh, on that side of the fence, as far as the doctors go. On the remediation front, to be honest with you guys, there aren't many. There really, really aren't many. I refer one company to everyone. Their name's All American Restoration. They have a couple different locations throughout the company and they end up traveling the same as we do. So I know that everyone that we work with, no matter where we're working across the country, that I have a remediator that I trust that knows what they're doing, that I can refer somebody to who will also come out and execute our plan. So that's the people that we refer out. Yeah, we're we're familiar with Michael Rubino's work with All American Restoration and that he specializes in working with really sensitized populations. So, I mean, if you have to pick a remediator, I guess that's probably the best one to go with. There's just so many failures in remediation, which leads me to my next question. Do you ever get phone calls, emails, complaints after the testing job was fully remediated and cleared of somebody still sick and they can't figure out why and they think it is mold? Like if they've had the process done before and then that's kind of how they reach out to us afterwards is they kind of tell us. Or even just houses that you've tested personally that have then been remediated and then like... do you personally ever receive complaints from things that maybe don't make sense to you? Like, you know, we tested this. I was pretty sure with what I found, it was remediated this way. These people still have these questions. Like they're saying they still feel sick in the house or worse or other symptoms. Like, do you ever hear cases like that? I mean, it happens the majority of time now, right? The majority of the time, if you're finding source, you're cleaning up the mess the source has made throughout the house you're removing a bunch of the exposure that's there. This is the thing that I tell people all the time is that our goal coming in, you're never going to have a net zero mold exposure house. It doesn't exist, right? Molds everywhere. It's a thing. A lot of people will use that as like, oh, molds everywhere. You can't do anything about it. That's not true. There's a lot you can do about it. But at the end of the day, you're never going to walk into a house and have zero exposure. That's just not a realistic expectation. The thing though, is that our bodies are naturally built to detox this stuff. They're supposed to do this. What happens though, is that when the exposure load 
becomes too much. And maybe a particular person's body is not as capable for whatever reason, you start getting the separation in, in, in the connection of those two pieces. So a lot of times you'll hear this, this um, analogy that, you know, your, your immune system is like a funnel. A lot of doctors talk about this. So you kind of like pour into the top of the funnel. That's all of your exposure. That's, that's not just mold, it's everything, but whatever you're being exposed to gets poured into the top. As the, as the funnel sort of, you know, gets more narrow towards the bottom, that's your body basically detoxing whatever it's doing. And the hole at the bottom of the funnel is whatever you're able to detox out the bottom, right? The concept and being, being able to sort of recalibrate somebody to be, you know, in more of homeostasis with their environment is to look at that funnel and say, okay, there's two sides of this funnel. We need to address both sides of this funnel. Okay, there's not just one, you have to do both. On the top side, which is really where we focus on, you got to pour less stuff in the top of the funnel, right? So that's that's basically reducing the overall exposure load in the house. It's finding the sources, cleaning up the mess the sources have made and reducing that load significantly. Let's say you go through the house and let's say you have 80% less exposure. Let's say you didn't even find everything. Let's say you have 75, 80% less exposure than you did before. That's 80% less crap that your body has to detox on the way down, right? So it's a much significant lower load that's coming through your system that your body now has to handle. Now we get towards down the bottom. Now, certain people, they can't detox as effectively. They have some inhibitors to that, whether it's genetic predisposition, whether it's, you know, you have different conditions that are not allowing that to happen properly. So maybe the hole at the bottom of their funnel is tighter, right? Other people, the hole is a little bigger. The goal of the medical practitioner is to open the size of that hole, right? Is to make that hole bigger. So what's happening is that you're basically shifting what the immune system looks like, what the funnel looks like. You're pouring less in the top and letting it flow better out the bottom. If you get both sides between the environment and the health practitioner working on that, you know, opening your drainage pathways, your methylation pathways, all this stuff, that's going to allow your body to do what it is actually supposed to do to some extent and, and support that process. So, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's different, right? And, and I actually did a podcast on my show with Dr. Lauren Tessier, where we talked about people where when the home looks clean after remediation, and we feel really good that things were found, that testing passes, that remediation was done, and people are still having symptoms, that doesn't mean that the remediation failed, right? There's more to this equation than environment directly to health and environment is the only thing. And if you take that out, bam, I'm healthy again. There's more to this equation. She has something that she called a, she called it a mold algorithm on the way that she treats people. And she basically looks, obviously environment's an important piece. When that part is considered, you know, good, right? Where you've, you've found things, you've done the post-testing, everything is good. She then starts to look for other things in the body that may be connected to that, but not a direct immediate response to that moving forward. Meaning you were exposed to stuff at some point in time, it impacted your body in a certain way. We've removed the exposure, but the impact is still having an effect in your body. And now that needs to get fixed. So just because somebody might be reacting after a remediation, you don't always fast forward to the part where this remediator sucks. We didn't find everything in the house that nothing can happen, burn the house down. That shouldn't be the first place you go. If you feel confident in the team that you had around you right now, if you don't feel like they did things and that's another story, right? But if you feel confident in the team you had around you, then there are next steps to do to look at your body. And, and that episode on, on, on my podcast, she really breaks it down. I don't want to butcher what she talked about because she's an expert and I'm not, but she really breaks down like the next steps that you look for. And that's another one of the doctors you mentioned me questions. Uh, that's another one of the doctors I talked to a lot on the back end is Dr. Lauren Tessier. 
Yeah, we have a very different take on all of that in a million different ways. The population that we serve is really the hypersensitive population. I mean, we talk to people who can walk in a room and point to the one object that had been in a moldy house. That's yeah. that's the people that we work with. And that's not like, it's not because they're not pooping and sweating or detoxing enough. It's There seems to be something else happening that the experts in the field don't recognize nor understand that only those that have become severely sensitized and have had the experience can recognize. And it seems like doctors try to educate us on something that they don't understand because that's actually hilarious to me. Because, you know, think of, think of, you know, all American, not all American restoration, because I don't think they would do wire brushing, but think of a company that does wire brushing, they remove the drywall, they remove the insulation, they do wire brushing on the structural beams, they replace everything. The person living there is severely immunocompromised, severely (laughs) sensitive, they come back in. There might be a couple spores of stachybotrys. They were told, oh, that's fine. One or two spores isn't going to hurt you. They're hypersensitized. Things may not have been wiped down, especially if it wasn't all American restoration, because I know they have a specific wipe down process. And then these people are literally told after their family spend $40,000 fixing a house that they're crazy because it should, they should be, they should be healthy now. And it's like, you know, two years out, you got to stop blaming like detox pathways and like it's garbage. And it's also, it's also not, it can't be just genetics because even Dr. Shoemaker is publicly saying we have to get away from saying this is just a genetic issue. And think about like animals dying in mold. They don't have the HLA genes that makes them not be able to detox. They die because it's poison. So yeah, we, we have like a quite a few areas where we separate from that line of thinking and we have to 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 honestly guide the hypersensitive population because it almost feels like this population has been hijacked by people who don't understand the medicine i don't know i actually don't think we're separate i agree with every single thing that you just said yeah the caveat on everything i said at the top of that was that the remediation has to be done the right way yeah if the remediation and the inspection isn't done the right way then everything you said happens that's the key to the whole thing and I can't tell you, like, the story that that people come to us is the exact story that you said. That's how most people find us. Because we I'm specialize with like the same The medical teams aren't looking at that in terms of hypersensitivity. Like, they're, they're then turning around and blaming the body. That's my point, is that is that healthcare practitioners are not focusing on that side of things. They're, they're literally turning around and blaming the body. And I think that's a big mistake. Well, I, I mean, I can't speak to how they practice. I'm not a doctor, obviously. So these are just things that I, that I pick up from the doctors that I speak with. And yeah. at the end of the day, I don't treat the body, right? Our, my focus is the house. My focus is finding the sources, figuring out where they are. And you talk about all Americans uh, cleaning plan. You know, we, we built that in tandem together. Like that whole wipe down process was our clients for a majority of that process over two years, figuring out how it worked and us working together and building out the process. So find a higher success rate with that for the people who like, do you have, you know, since implementing primarily that with the wipe down process, do you come across fewer complaints from hypersensitive people? And how long have you only been recommending them? I mean, since... 
So when we first started, we weren't national at the beginning, right? We were in local markets. This was a family business. We learned how to do this from our fathers and father-in-laws. And and there's a whole backstory on how we kind of got into working with hypersensitive people. And they really blazed the path for us to really set that up. And so they basically taught us what they had learned. And then we basically took that and said, you know, there's so many more people that are calling us from all over the place because we started presenting at medical conferences and we started explaining and sharing how we go through houses, how it's different than your normal people. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, please come look at our house, look at our house. We didn't have a way to do it. So we we essentially figured out a way to service everyone, right? We created the footprint and and the infrastructure to support, you know, kind of doing this on a national scale. We have been working with with Mike for years prior to the national sort of expansion of what had gone on. When we were in our more local areas, obviously we were referring everything to his company as well at the time because they were local at the time as well in the particular market where he was, which was Northeast. And we had you know, another company in, in um, Southern California that we were looking at. When I compare both of them together, I think that Mike's company is is better, right? So that's why that they become, you know, the referral path. And then they also built out an infrastructure to mirror what we had talked about to help support people everywhere, right? So just makes a lot of sense to go there. There's a lot of people like, I want two, I want three remediators. I want to have bids. I want, you know, they feel like that. And I tell people like, honestly, guys, like I could try to give you someone else, but I know they don't, they aren't great. So do you want me to give you somebody that I know is going to come in and not execute the job properly so you can get a second bid? Or do you just want to talk to the people that I know do a really good job and then maybe talk with them on alternatives and how to work out a plan that might fit better within what you can execute? I'd rather start with somebody who's really good and try to create a plan that's more suited around you know, limitations than try to bring someone in that's lesser just because they're a cheaper price point. It was an alternative bid that somebody can get. So you know, that's why that's why that we refer to Mike. That's why Mike refers people to us when, when people come in and say, oh, we have issues but they need to find the sources first, right? And that's where we come in and that's how we interplay with All-American in terms of the roles that we serve people. So do you see less complaints from hypersensitive with those methods applied? Or or were you not really getting a lot of feedback in that regard to begin with? I mean, I don't get a lot of feedback, which means that there's not a lot of complaints, right? If people were complaining, we'd be getting phone calls. You missed this, you missed that. I'm still sick. This is going on. Why didn't any of this work? We don't get those phone calls, right? And it's a team effort, right? I could find everything that exists in the house. If the remediator comes in and sucks and can't execute it, then they're going to think that everything was wrong. Yeah, I feel like that. On the flip side, Mike could go into a house and be the best remediator that exists. But if they didn't have somebody that found all the sources and guide them to what needs to be handled, then the person is going to come back in the house, feel sick again, and bam, it's going to be like remediation doesn't work, this and that, right? It's surrounding yourself with a team that's really good at doing what they do and being able to get that plan all together. So, I mean, you know, we've worked with the most of hypersensitive people. We've then worked with people that aren't quite on that scale, right? There's a scale of how sensitive people are. I mean, we worked with a kid a few years ago, moves into a house, his new family, he's he's nine years old, family moves into a new house. Within a year, the kid is in a wheelchair on a feeding tube, just destroyed. Right. Before this, the kid's playing like peewee football and stuff. He's like being a normal kid, completely destroyed. They spent a couple years trying to figure out what was wrong with them. Doctor after doctor after doctor. You know how this process goes, right? Nobody really can figure out what's going on. Finally finds a doctor that puts the connection together. At the end of the day, he has mass cell activation syndrome that's triggered by a lot of the stuff that's going on in the house. 
They put the connection together. We get the referral from their practitioner that, that to come look through things. We find out that their basement is a pretty big problem. Their HVAC system is located in their basement, which is then spreading it all over the house. And there's a couple other source areas in the house that are going on. Kind of map out that plan. House gets remediated properly. Nine months later, the kid is back out of the wheelchair and living his life again, right? Now, that's that's a very acute, like dramatic circumstance. I moved into a place completely demolished. The, pers- the, the situation got fixed. My body responded, got well, right? This is a young kid that was resilient in that way, right? Not everybody falls into that category. Most people are not anywhere near that bad, right? In terms of what visibly people can see. And this is the thing I talk about. Just because you're not in a wheelchair with a feeding tube stuck in your stomach doesn't mean that what you're feeling isn't equivalent for you, right? Like there, this whole this whole thing that I can't see that you're sick, so you must not be in a bad situation is kind of ridiculous, right? Like there's so many things that could be happening internally that are that are just traumatizing and, and demoralizing for us and the pain and all the things that go with that. The point of the story is to say that like, this is how this works. You find the source that's clean properly. You address everything in the right way. And that, that is a very visual example of how that, of, of how that worked across the board. Yeah. I'm happy for that little boy to make a full recovery. We see, we see the opposite side of things. The cases that fall to our group are the cases that, you know, they thought that they, they thought that they hired the best remediation team, even though you know, the techniques might not have been great and then move back in and people are still sick and other people think the sick people are crazy. And it, it really, it can really devastate families like financially, mentally, emotionally. And unfortunately, those are, those are more of the stories that we see because they're the ones that are like falling through the cracks a little bit. Uh-huh. I know that Michael's working hard to, to train more people on more remediators on, on sensitization. So hopefully he'll help elevate the standard of the industry that way. But I'd like to just pass the mic over to Alicia and Eric. I know, I know Eric's going to be dying to ask you some questions probably. Well, this thing that really intrigues me is that 30 years ago, the remediation profession didn't even exist. There was none of this. Yeah. I mean, this this is very new. If you take like a very like macro view of what's going on right now, this is all new stuff. It's new from the medical side. It's new from the environmental professional side. You know, I make the comparison a lot. Like look at look at the path that cigarettes took from when we first started understanding it was an issue to when something actually happened to make a change in that you can't smoke in places and this and that. That process took on the top of my head, I did all this for, for a project I was working on. I think it was 30 plus years for the first research to come out that linked cigarette issues, you know, to health problems, all the way to the point where there's actually some sort of legislation from a government entity that it can actually make some change. It's like a 30-year process, right? We're so early in the mold piece, we're like at the very beginning of that process, where on that kind of same trajectory of where cigarettes started. It's been proven. We know the connection. There's a bunch of research out there. We like it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just now at this point where it's not getting adopted, and it's and, and everyone's still crazy and, and all this stuff. And we're we're still early on that that there really aren't standards specific for hypersensitive people, for example. Like that doesn't exist, right? And the standards that are out there and that were created are all kind of antiquated, right? They're not really updated. They don't really mirror the new research that comes out and they're still doing things the same way they did it 10, 15 years ago. And there's just a lot of stuff that's been learned since then that needs to be updated and changed. And, and that's, 
you know, that's part of, of servicing a community that needs that is that you need to be on top of that. So there are certain practitioners that do that. There's certain environmental folks like myself that do that. There's certain mediators like Mike that do that. And, and that's kind of, you know, to your point, that's kind of, that's kind of the issue, right? Well, one thing that uh, really disturbs me is that back in the 1980s, the toxic overload, as you mentioned, the funnel hypothesis was very much in vogue and it really didn't fit for certain buildings. Like this poster behind me is a representation of the early history of the toxic mold phenomenon, where certain hospitals, schools, EPA building in Washington, D.C., all showed up with people who got sick and did not recover, even if they were removed from the building. And in some cases, people even got worse. So some investigations were done, and they found a pattern of toxic molds, the trichothecene producers in particular, Stachybotrys charterum. So uh, over time, more and more reports of this particular mold emerged. And it um, came out that people can become so hypersensitive to these trichothecene-producing molds that there's really no comparison between this type of mold and the other various molds, aspergillus, penicillium, the uh, common ones that are blamed. This is the one that shows up where people don't recover. And in the hypersensitization phenomenon, I've taken people to buildings where stachybotrys was found, and they all complain, every one of them, instantly. In fact, sometimes we don't even have to get inside the building, just walk up close to the front door, and people can sense it. So that's kind of where this moves from the realm of a building that can be remediated into a hypersensitivity phenomenon where people are so reactive that a possession that's brought out a stachybotrys building can affect them. And that's why we're curious about the remediation procedures, because if somebody is hypersensitive on that level, then their possessions or possessions, things that were brought out of another building into their house can be a driving force in their symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that happen too. I was years ago, I was working with, I was actually working with a doctor on her house specifically. She had her own you know, mold issues that she was dealing with, went through, found a number of things she remediated. And we had talked to her about how to reintroduce her contents into her house. Because to your point, if something was contaminated before and it's not cleaned well enough before you bring it in, or maybe it just can't be cleaned for whatever reason, it's a cushioned item that can't be cleaned all the way. It's a super old antique where maybe it's just penetrated so far that there's no way that you can really get it, whatever, whatever the reason is. So she started reintroducing these things in a more calculated way versus what most people do, which is they just bring all their stuff back into their house at once because they're so happy the process is over, right? You're like, oh, finally, I can move back into the house. And if you trigger at that point, you don't know what it is that triggered you. And exactly what you're saying, there could be certain items that really created that trigger. So what happened with this particular doctor, she did this and she kind of did things in a more methodical way when she was introducing stuff back in. And there was this one particular, and it was in her family for a long time, that it was like an armoire or chest or something like that that she had and it was like passed down through her family. When she brought that back into her room, immediately she could just feel it. And it was like, okay, so you were okay in here after the remediation, you started bringing things back in this one item triggered you. Okay. Then we, then at some point we have to start asking a question, what's more important, this, this item that's here or this whole journey that we're on and ultimately where we're trying to get to on the health side of things. And then that's when maybe, you know, for her, she discarded that, that item. So it wasn't there anymore. So I've, I've seen very similar what you're talking about. Yeah. I remember a guy in France 
who had an antique bedroom set that had been in his family for generations. And he's saying, I, it's killing me. I, I have to get rid of this antique, you know, hundreds of years old. But if I get rid of it, my family's going to kill me. So I figured he was doomed either way. But yeah, yeah. yeah. that's exactly it. If you're at the level where a single item can, or, you know, a chest of drawers or a bedroom set or something like that can be a driving force in your illness, then it's going to drive remediators crazy because they can do everything they want in terms of fixing your house, but that's not going to address those contaminated items. A hundred percent. And and so then are you judging the, the remediation of the structural components of the house and the cleaning of the whole house based on the fact that you brought contents in and you're triggering? It's not the remediator's fault, right? It's not, not at all. Thing, but right? if it's they don't know that, yeah. if, they, if they're not aware of that, then they'll blame the remediator. Of course. No, you're right. And that's why I think it's important. It's so hard when you can't see stuff, right? And so you just have to blame, like, you know, you, you, obviously it's expensive, right? So something didn't work. Somebody has to be to blame. It didn't work. And, and there's validity in that in some cases, of course, right? But in cases like this, this is why I'm kind of a fan of reintroducing things into the house in a more, you know, kind of strategic way instead of just dump loading everything back in. Because if something like that just triggers something, you have no idea, right? And then you're going to think remediation doesn't work. You're going to get back into the Facebook groups and you're going to start agreeing with everyone that says you have to burn your house down because there's no escaping it. And it's not necessarily true. Just maybe there was something you brought in your house that just, for whatever reason, couldn't be cleaned well. Listen, a large number of audience members have been reaching out after hearing my tragic COVID story of losing my family member because the hospital treating her refused to provide her the medication she needed to fight the virus. I appreciate all the love and support. And my biggest piece of advice, advice that I've been providing over and over again, is to begin multi-drug treatment day one of COVID symptoms. At mygotodoc.com, you can obtain help from Dr. Saeed Hader, who has treated over 40,000 COVID and COVID long-haul patients with zero deaths. Yes, you heard me, zero deaths. That's an impressive track record for sure. Once you sign up to become a patient at mygotodoc.com, you can send free messages to Dr. Hader's care team forever and obtain prescription medications from the most affordable pharmacies in the country that ship right to your door. And you don't have to deal with price gouging or corporate pharmacies that stop you from receiving the life-saving medications you need. Now, although we're hoping, fingers crossed, that Omicron means the end of the pandemic, many researchers are predicting another wave in a few months. That means high-risk patients need preventative treatment or at least meds on hand so they can start treatment fast. Low-risk patients often benefit from off-label meds because they can prevent long COVID. A recent article in Fortune magazine states that one of the pandemic's biggest mysteries, the symptoms of long COVID, may be playing a huge part in the millions of missing workers. Over 100 million Americans report having lingering effects of the virus. Now, thankfully, after learning all that I know and going through all that I went through, I signed myself and my family up for mygotodoc.com and stocked our medicine cabinets with all of the life-saving medications I wish I had for my deceased loved one. Please learn from my mistakes and prepare yourself today. MyGoToDoc.com is your go-to resource for COVID-19. People reintroduce things one at a time and then realize that they're finally showing symptoms. So they take the last thing that they brought in back out of the house, 
not realizing that their reactivity is the sum total of the contamination, the lower level contamination of all their stuff. So yeah, to, very well to could be. yeah, to to reset the the square the game back to square one, they pretty much have to take everything back out of the house if it was in a contaminated building. Yeah, I think it's true for some people. I think some people maybe it is a single thing. I think you just kind of have to figure it out. You know, it's th- this is all such an individual process. Like there, there are there's a flow, there are things to do, there's whatever, but our bodies are all so different from each other that you really need to listen to your body. Like we mentioned earlier, and I've seen this before too, where someone has been like, there's mold behind this wall when I walk in the house. So I'm really good at, at what, what we do. And that wall, there would have been no reason for me to suspect something there. There's been no previous water issue. There's no current water issue. There's no discoloration, no bubbling, buckling, staining, nothing for me to think that something off is going on behind this wall. The best person, the best inspector in the world probably wouldn't, wouldn't look at that because there's no trigger for them. Infrared scans are fine. Moisture readings are fine. None of the tools, nothing, right? If somebody tells me that there's something behind this wall, you better believe I'm testing it because that person isn't saying that for no reason, Right. Let's see if there is something behind this wall. And a lot of times they're right, right? So like, I think intuitively we know things and it might not be super clear, like how we can sort of decipher what we're feeling necessarily, but you get like this feeling, you get this. So that's why I think, that's what I think our gut feeling is. I think our gut feeling is something our body knows that our brain just can't translate. That's kind of what I, that's what, that's what my vision of what a gut feeling is. And so I think that happens to people. I think you need to listen to your gut. I think it's very important when things like that happen, you know, kind of to what you're saying. Yeah. So that's uh, the problem with the remediation industry is if they try to convince people that they can successfully take care of their house and that it's reliable, you know, when they're done with their job, that you, you know, this house is pretty clear and they're sensitive on this level then obviously there's there's going to be problems. So it's really more important to educate people that there is a condition beyond which remediation can help. Yeah, well, I mean, think of what remediation really is. Remediation is removal of source and then cleaning of the contamination that the source has created. That's what remediation is. Source and contamination can mean your items, right? So we have to think of remediation beyond structural and you have to think of it to anything that's a source that's within the space and anything that could have been cross-contaminated. So I think having a broader view of what remediation actually means helps to incorporate some of the ideas that you're talking about. Well, I wonder how often in these cases of people who don't recover after being removed from a building, that residual contamination on possessions and things that are brought into their environment is a driving force and they're unaware of it. And it very well could be, right? I think, again, I think if someone is confident in the team they brought around them, I can't speak for everyone, right? So like, you just have to, you have to feel, if, if you have to feel like what was done was done properly, right? And if you don't, that's another story. But if you feel confident in it and you're still seeing things, then I think you have to start going down the road that you're talking about, right? You have to start thinking of these other elements. There's, there's really not a way for someone to know if everything was perfect, unless you're doing post-testing on the back end and you're and you're validating that every source that was found was removed properly. This means you're not just doing air tests and containment spaces. That's not how you do post-testing, even though most people do it that way. You have to be testing the surfaces that were remediated. Mold grows on surfaces. It doesn't grow in the air, right? So to come in during a post-testing process and do an air sample in the containment and it comes back clear, which are better, by the way, because an air scrubber has been running for days at that point. So if there's a problem in an air sample, then you really got something going on in that space. For an air sample to be clear, it better be, right? That doesn't mean the surface samples 
from the area where the mold was actually growing was actually removed properly, right? So you not only have to feel confident that the sources were found during the inspection, but you also really need to do post-testing in the proper manner to validate that, that they were properly removed. And you need to post-test throughout the house to validate that the dispersion load has been brought down and get some, some actual validation to that point. And when you feel comfortable with all of that between the team that found what was going on, the team that remediated it, and the information that comes back after the post-testing, you say, okay, if we feel good about this stuff, then we have to think about what's the next thing. And this is kind of what you're talking about. The next thing is items, belongings, cross-contamination, that sort of thing. So that's kind of the next step. How often do you run into the problem of people, their house is okay, but their neighbor's house is bad and they just happen to be downwind? I haven't really seen that be a big a big driver, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I haven't had anyone where we've gone through the house, gone through the process, everything looks good they're feeling bad. And then it's like, oh, it's the neighbor's house. You know, I've never seen that, honestly. So I think, I mean, at the end of the day, if that's the case, and you'll never be able to leave your house. You can't go, you can't go anywhere. You can't go to the store. You can't go, well, you can't live store, there. You can't go shopping. You can't go anywhere. If, if, yeah. This is a big problem in uh, Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy, they had all that flooding and a lot of places grew toxic mold. And even when people remediated their own house, there were a bunch of abandoned houses left in the neighborhood, and these are driving illness and making these entire neighborhoods feel like a sick building, and it's outside. It's in the air. Yeah. So uh, part of I, I felt a remediator's job is to warn people, maybe we might be able to fix your house, but you also need to take into account that the house upwind of you is still bad. I mean, I don't know if it's the remediator's job to necessarily say that every other house on the block has a problem and that's going to make you sick. I mean, the remediator's job is to come in and execute a, a plan to, to fix your house, right? So I'm not sure. I feel like that's a broader sort of just education kind of conversation that needs to happen versus it being the remediator's yeah, job. It's absolutely a broader conversation, but aren't you worried that if somebody has done everything they can in their house and it didn't work, that by not being aware that another source might be a driving force, they would continue to blame you. And I don't really get blamed for things, to be honest with you. People are pretty happy with us. So I, it's not something that I necessarily have dealt with personally. So it's not something I can really have experience doing. I mean, there are people that decide that, that there's a place. And again, this is, this goes back to that gut feeling thing where it's just like, we just don't feel like that this is the place that we need to be right? It's just not the right spot for us. I, I feel like that feeling may come up in a scenario like that. You don't really know why you can't put your finger on it, but maybe in your heart of hearts, you just kind of feel like no matter what we do in this place, this isn't going to work for me. I think you have to listen to your gut in those cases. I'm never going to force someone to stay in their house and be like, no, stay in your house, fix it. It's going to be great. Like at the end of the day, I think intuition, I think your gut feelings, I think there really is something to that. I think your body knows a lot more than what your brain, what your brain could comprehend in some cases. I think you have to listen to that. And I think I would imagine that somebody that's in a scenario like that might have it, might have a feeling like that. And then even if they don't, and you go through this whole process and you're still sick, then maybe at that point they might get that feeling, right? I at the end of the day. I think that most places, if it's handled properly, can become suitable places for someone to live. It's expensive. There's logistics. It can be a process. Obviously, there are things to that, right? There are very few places I go into. I'm like, run away from this place. Get the hell out of here. There's very few places that I walk in and do that. That said, if somebody's telling me when, we, when we're having a conversation, even after we do the assessment, we're kind of reviewing findings and reporting and everything. They're like, you know what, Brian? Like, 
I definitely see all this and, and I see everything that you're showing me and I get it. They're like, I just, I just think that we should move, even though we've invested in this already. I see all of this that's here. I just don't feel like this is the right spot for me. I'm never going to try to convince them the other way. If you don't feel it's the right spot for you, then I think that oh, you should. Oh, absolutely. But just as you've said, where the inadequacies of air testing can mislead people into thinking their place is clean and clear when it's really not, because the testing just isn't really up to the task. So telling people that they can rely on this test is actually damaging. It's causing harm. Still, there's another level that goes into hypersensitization, where convincing people that the problem is we've we checked your house, we've done a good job, we've got everything there is. So now if you have any further problem, it's probably not the house. This also might be very misleading in the same exact way, considering that the hypersensitive people cannot be their problems can't be corrected this way. And I think there are some people that the house might not be good for them, right? I, I mean, I think we're kind of circling around the same thing a few times here. I think that there are people where that makes sense. Like St. Bernard Parish. After uh, New Orleans flooded, the entire outside air became equal to a sick building. Anywhere else, you'd say, wow, this, this is a sick building, except it's outside. So how do you tell people, maybe you might not want to live here anymore? I mean, I would have no problem having that conversation with someone if that's what I really thought. You have to, you have to talk to people about what you really think, right? I've had people that are living in places where there have been massive floods and hurricanes. And it's like, okay, do we remediate this? Do you go somewhere else? Hey, listen, guys, if you go anywhere else nearby, you're going to be looking at the same thing, right? So you got to decide, like, do you want to, do you want to be in this area where you are, but realize that every place that you go into is, has been impacted by the same stuff. It's not like it was just your house. So are you going to try to go down this road or are you not going to try to go down this road? It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you that you have to do one or the other, but this is what you're up against, but to educate them so they can make their own decision. Like the testing that compares inside to outside air samples. Well, if the outside air was worse than inside, according to a lot of people's theories, they'd say your house is fine because it's actually less mold inside than outside. Whereas if the entire area is equal to a sick building, then you're going to have a problem walking around your house outside. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just one of the core weaknesses in doing air testing in that way. So yeah, I agree with that. So that's kind of the conversation that's inevitable for any remediator to have is, is it the house or is it the area? I, I, I don't really know what else to say on it other than if, if you think that it's the area, if that's something that's going on, then you should leave the area, right? I think it's a little... I don't think the expectation for a remediator to come in, remediator's job is to execute a plan. A remediator's job is not to inspect your house and figure out where the sources are and how it's moving around. So I think asking a remediator to be able to do that, I don't think that sets a proper expectation for people, right? I don't think it's on them to have that conversation with someone. I think if you know that you're, and this is a bigger, you're giving examples of hurricanes, right? You're giving us a massive water flood events that impacted significant areas of places that's creating a larger localized issue in an environment that's outside. That's, that's something that's just a general education thing that has to happen through podcasts, through places where people are seeking out information or something to consider, right? No, I just use those as extreme examples, but it's happening on a smaller scale all over towns where, just as I say, somebody's house can go bad and it's affecting their neighbor and the neighbor, it's driving them crazy because they can't figure it out. So I was just curious as to how often you're running into this and whether or not you have that conversation with people. 
I mean, I've never really seen that be an issue. Again, no one's really kind of reached out to us and been like, wow, this we did, we're still incredibly sick. None of this worked, right? So I haven't really gotten to the point with people where we're trying to diagnose some other thing that might be going on, right? So, you know, it's unfortunately, I just, you know, I just can't speak to that. I guess I haven't really experienced that. As I see the progression of this phenomenon, I believe that you will be running into this more and more. And we met. So it's something to keep in mind for sure. Sure. Alicia? Yeah. You know, Keely had brought up a, a good point just before. It's, you know, if you're someone that's specializing in hypersensitive individuals, these are kind of conversations that you have to have with them. And it's just so strange, right, to have these type of conversations because it it's weird to think that maybe an environment might be bad, but it's also something that opens up uh, a space for discovery to understand what the heck is going on in the environment that is making these homes bad all of a sudden, right? And I just wanted to circle back to your website. You say that you specialize in, you have developed your own specialized inspection process for hypersensitive individuals. And I just wanted to know what that process is and if you can walk us through that. Yeah, it's... It's really about understanding. I mean, it's so simple when you kind of say it, but then the execution of it is, you know, you have to be able to execute it. But I joke around all the time when people ask, you know, kind of how this works, but like the secret to finding hidden mold in a house is to not look for hidden mold at all. That's, that's not how you do it. You need to understand historical water issues that have been packed into space. You need to understand what signs of water damage look like beyond looking at a moisture meter, beyond looking at an infrared camera, because most times those are not showing any problem. There are there are cues and triggers. I, you know, when I first first started way back when when I was doing this, my very first inspection, I went out on my own after I'd been, you know, trained to the point where, where I was ready to do it. I went into this condo, the the client was incredibly sensitive. He had, this is like way pre-COVID. This is like 10 years ago. He had to wear a mask everywhere that he went because he was so sensitized by both mold and chemicals. He had, he had MCS too, that he couldn't live, he couldn't walk into a building without wearing a mask. So I first meet this guy and he's wearing a mask and I'm just kind of wondering like, why is this, why is this guy wearing a mask? Like I had never really seen this before. And he kind of explains to me his situation, what's going on. And, and so anyways, he's trying to buy this, this condo that's like in this high rise building. It's a really nice building. And he you know, wanted us to look through it and, and make sure. And he basically says like, listen, he explains how sensitive he is to everything. There can't be a mold problem in this house. Otherwise this is going to be just a disaster for me basically. Right. And I, there's a lot of pressure under that situation. It was the first time I'd ever really had somebody sort of express like how important this was for them, you know? And I go in the house and there's no moisture readings anywhere. Infrared cameras are all great. If I did air samples in the middle of the room, I'm sure they would be fine. And I'm sure most people will come and be like, cool, you're ready to move into this place. I start looking around. And so one of the things that we're doing is, you know, we're, we're looking for these signs of water damage that, that are really the key triggers that there's possibly mold hiding behind these areas, right? So... So one of the things I see kind of across the majority of the condo is that there's just a little bit of bubbling in the bottom of the baseboards around a good chunk of the condo. And so, you know, but kind of like bubbling paint, if you looked at it, it was like bubbling out a little bit, but it wasn't really dramatic in any way, but it was just kind of like a very minimal amount that was sort of consistent along a lot of it. So initially my first thought was, 
were people were like maids cleaning this place with just like extra water or moisture or something. And maybe it soaked into the, the baseboards when they were mopping or something. I'm trying to kind of figure out what's going on. And as I go around more and more, I just had this feeling like, I feel like that there's been a flood in this house. I just kind of feel like there has a, that the realtor's not disclosing and no one's talking about. I couldn't explain why I'm seeing this, this kind of extensive, really minimal sign of water damage across a big chunk of the house. It's been making sense to me. I go tell this to, to my client, his name is Nick. And he's like, they didn't tell me anything about that. I'm like, hey, listen, do you think that we could just call the building outside of the realtor and maybe just ask them if something has happened here, right? We call the building, get like, you know, the building maintenance guy or whatever. He's like, oh yeah, there used to be an, an elderly guy that lived in this unit and he started a bath and then forgot about it and flooded out almost the whole thing. It's like, holy crap. Like I immediately look at him like, you're not moving in this place. So we just, we should just walk out of here. Like it doesn't make any sense. He's like, no, I really, really like this place. I ended up having to test. I tested all the walls that had an issue. We tested like 20 something walls in here. And almost every one of them came back with a problem hidden behind the walls. Nothing visible other than like a millimeter of bubbling paint at the bottom of the baseboard, right? This is the process for inspecting a house for someone who's hypersensitive. It's understanding what water damage looks like. It's understanding that something could have gotten wet 15 years ago and mold could have grown as a result of it. And then the water source went away, but the mold is still there and it doesn't go anywhere. And furthermore, that it actually dries out when the water goes away, becomes more brittle and can impact the living space even more so than an actively growing colony can. So it's, it's understanding how it grows, why it grows, where it stays and what the signs of that are. And then it's beyond anybody's fancy moisture meter or infrared camera. And it's being able to go through and identify these things. That's kind of the process in terms of, you know, kind of a broad scope, but basically we go through all, you know, different rooms and there's specific things that we're looking for. And then in turn, there's a broad scope that we do throughout the room as well for anything that's suspect. And most of what we identify for our clients, when we're talking about sampling, there's no moisture anywhere, right? There's nothing there, but that most of the time there's still issues in those places. So that, that's kind of the core. The core is understand where the source is and how to identify the source but then secondarily, how that source has basically impacted the living spaces and in turn, your ventilation system. You know, a lot of people have some sort of ventilation system that's going on, how all three of those are interplaying together and how we need to remediate each one of those separately in order for the whole house, which is a complete living system, to then be able to not continuously spread and move things around. Because you can find every single source in the house, remediate them completely well, but if your HVAC system is still compromised or you haven't cleaned the house properly, you're still going to be exposed when you come back in the house and you're going to think that remediation doesn't work. So you have to address these different levels of the house together. You have to understand what's happening at those levels and put a plan in that, that addresses them together. Great. Thank you for that. And I'm just curious, since you've been in the game for a while and from your site again, says you're a second generation environmental consultant, are you seeing a rise in requests for testing or are you seeing a rise in illness? Uh, possibly for mold in people's homes. I think we're seeing both. I actually don't think the rise in illness has risen necessarily. I just think the understanding of what's creating it has risen, right? So that there's more connection to the fact that environment is triggering some of these things that used to be looked at as chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, or I get I have brain fog or whatever. A lot of those things historically were just looked at, oh, you're getting older, these things happen, whatever, whatever. I think that there's more understanding and knowledge that, hey, maybe there's an environmental connection to this. So I think that the understanding of like the reporting of mold illness is increasing. But in turn, 
I also think with that, there are many more people that are trying to address it, that are trying to understand it. So there's, I mean, if you just look at, there's a, there's a, a conference that's called ILADS. It's a, it's a Lyme disease uh, focused medical conference. We started going a long, long time ago. When I first started going, there was like a hundred practitioners maybe that were at this conference. The last one that I went to in person, which was a few years ago, there was like 1300 there. Right. And then you think each of these practitioners then have a tree of people that they treat underneath them. You know, I don't know how many people they treat, but then you, you kind of look at how the, the knowledge is moving and how the um, identification is moving. And from that, obviously, more people are going to be looking for testing and inspections and addressing things properly. So I think both of what you're saying is true on both of those fronts. Well, it's interesting that chronic fatigue syndrome was coined in 1988 and nobody attributed to mold for 20 years. Nobody successfully identified the chronic fatigue syndrome as being mold-related until Dr. Shoemaker finally did. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a catch-all diagnosis when you didn't know what was going on. Like, oh, we don't know what's happening. This guy's fatigued all the time. Bad chronic fatigue. Done. We've got a diagnosis we can plug into the machine and give a pill for. Actually, it that's wasn't a catch-all diagnosis. The instructions say to rule out everything that's known to cause a similar condition, any kind of fatigue, must be ruled out and to look for anything that's left. And if this process had been done in the sick buildings, then they would have found, well, we've ruled out cancer, we've ruled out diabetes, we've ruled out depression, all the things that mimic chronic fatigue syndrome, and what's left? Wow, there's something in the sick buildings. And yet, strangely enough, no doctors ever did that. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, we're always learning, right? So it took the doctors, it took, if it wasn't for Shoemaker, who knows how long it would have taken, right? Yeah, so... so I'm curious as to whether the phenomenon has actually grown, emerged, increased, or whether Dr. Shoemaker was just the only one smart enough to to try to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I think you're probably leaning towards number two. I think that no matter what the what the uh, discovery is, there's always that one crazy guy with a crazy idea that pushes forward to figure it out. That then things get built on, right? So I think. You know, if it wasn't for him, would it have been someone else? Maybe would it have been a lot longer later. I don't know. Maybe it would have happened at all. I don't know. Right. Well, but luckily, I, I see a, the organization. I see a Dr. Robert Navial of the Open Medicine Foundation at Stanford. He's he's a member of that, and he hasn't made this connection. He wrote the forward for Dr. Neil Nathan's book Toxic, and yet he goes to the uh, Stanford meetings and he never talks about mold. Yeah, I agree with We're you. Still waiting for I, the I think that there's an that, that there's an underservice of knowledge that's getting out there and the connection. I completely agree with you. We're again, we're in the early phases of this from all sides. And I, you know, doctors specifically, and again, I'm not a doctor, I can't speak for them, but I think some of them are really hesitant to put connections to things that they that aren't like universally true because it puts their medical license at risk. It does other things. So you, you kind of have to think about motivations and where people are coming from. And Listen, not everyone with the same certification has the same level of knowledge anywhere, right? You get a college degree from name that college, and one of those people could be incredibly successful, and the other one could be terribly unsuccessful, right? So that degree doesn't mean that everyone's on the same level, right? They're everyone's their own person, right? And 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 you kind of have to find those people that that align with you. Yeah, I ask that question constantly. Where did people get their certification? How did their authority derive? And what gave the person who's issuing these certifications the right to certify others? They might actually be passing along misinformation. Completely agree. I'm actually not a huge fan. I don't think certifications mean that much, to be honest with you, because you can 
anyone could go get a certification that's looking at a book that was written 20 years ago about how to do something 20 years ago. And there you go. You train someone else to go out and do something that's antiquated. So, you know, certifications are there for a reason. I understand that we obviously have certifications. You have to have that. But at the end of the day, like not everyone with the same certification is going to look at things the same way, the same way that not everyone that graduated from the same college is going to be doing the same thing at the end of the day. So I, I think if you're only looking at certs and you're not looking at anything else, then you need to, you kind of need to do some more homework on whoever you're surrounding yourself with. And when the sick building syndrome emerged as a discrete phenomenon, it was blamed on chemicals, bacteria, legionnaires disease, anything except mold. When the um, paradigm, the sick building indoor air quality profession finally accepted mold as, as a factor, even though they had no knowledge of mold, it was simply assumed that their credentials, their certifications, the letters next to their name carried over into mold when many of them had never looked into mold at all. Yeah. Again, I agree with you, right? It's not that I'm disagreeing. It's that it, people are learning as they go. I, you know, I, I think that this is something that's continuing to, to get press, if you will, and not from mainstream, but just from people who are spreading the word. This is the good thing about where we are now is that we can spread knowledge where we can and access it where we can. And it's, it's just something that we all have to continue to work together to spread. Absolutely. Well, thank you for spreading the word. <laughs> thank you. guys. Thanks, Brian. I had one last question before we sign off. And yeah. it's something that's been on our mind. Since you specialize in helping the hypersensitive, and it seems like your protocols are much more intensive than a standard mold testing company, are you seeing a connection to the discovery of stachybotrys in people's homes and the severity of illness? I don't know if that made any sense. Did that make sense? No, it does. It sense in my brain. No, I know what you're, I know what you're asking. To be honest, I don't know enough about the actual health position of everyone. Like I know general symptom sets, I know things like that, but when you start getting into what what's really going on in someone's body and how severe is it actually? I don't know if I have enough information, honestly, to, to, to know the answer to that, right? You know, stack is obviously not good, right? There's other molds that could trigger things in people too. There's other molds that create toxins as well, right? There's, there's a lot of components to it. I don't know if I have the information that can specifically tie like that to what people are feeling necessarily. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't know if I can really kind of dive into that piece of it. Okay, great. Well, where, where can our audience members find you, Brian, if they want to work with you? Yeah, our company is called We Inspect. Yesweinspect.com is our website where you can you know, provide some information on what's going on with you. And we can see you know, if we're a good fit to, to work together. The other main space, my, my Instagram page is, is at MoldFinders. We share a lot of stuff there as well to, to kind of help. And I have my own podcast called MoldFinders Radio over hundred episodes at this point, I basically try to empower people and share a bunch of stuff that I can to help them along their journeys as well. So if people are looking for some resources just to get access to no cost, just sort of, you know, learn what they can. Those are some places they can do that. Keely Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. 
When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement for mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N. S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. Thank you everyone for joining us today. It was a great conversation with Brian. Thank you for being patient with us and answering all of our our crazy questions we have coming your way. (laughs) We're just really curious. And, And again, the patient population that we deal with is very, very hypersensitive. And so we, and you know, me, Keely and Eric have become very hypersensitive. So we're very hardcore when it comes to mold testing and mold remediators. Not sure if you heard our Rubino episode, but we were, we were pretty crazy with him. We were like, do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know that? Are you this honest? Are you willing to say this or that? And so that's just who we are because we really want to protect everyone that we're serving. And we want to make sure people are, you know, provided with fair service and also that, these people like you, like mold testers are just being extremely honest with them. Even if they hit a wall where, Hey, you know, your home can't be remediated anymore. You're still sick. You might need to think about leaving. These are hard conversations, but these are conversations that should be had. And so thank you again for joining us. Please check us out on all podcasting locations and also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages. We have a wonderful educational group that you can join. It's very low cost and we provide a lot of great information. Thank you everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.